0: On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome to this episode of the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. Funding for the E-Series is provided by the Dr. John A. Lusk Fund for Hospice and Palliative Care Education. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. In today's episode, Trent Cockrum, CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, is joined by Leslie Groves palliative counselor for Novant Health. You can read more about Leslie in the show notes for this episode. Together, Trent and Leslie will explore the conversations and emotions that patients and families experience when they receive a difficult medical diagnosis and begin to process how to move forward and what the future may hold. As we'll hear, the news, there's nothing else that can be done, is a misnomer, an inaccuracy. But this phrase can allow patients and families the opportunity to redefine hope, expectations, and what really matters. Let's listen in.
1: Leslie, it is so great to see you. I am so glad um, to be with you again. Uh, my dear friend and colleague, Leslie Groves, is joining uh, me today. Um, and although Ryan introduced you, um, you know, in full disclosure, we had a great working relationship. You worked for Hospice of the Piedmont for a number of years and had a great privilege of working alongside you. Um, and so we're going to use some of that, um, experience that you had as 18 years as a social worker and sort of take a, you know, an an exploration, um, and a little bit of an adventure for our listeners today. Um, it's so good to see you.
2: Good to see you too, Trent. Thank you. And to you, Ryan, for having me and uh, wanting to tap into that experience of, uh, many years in hospice and palliative world.
1: Yeah. So we'll jump right in. Um, you know, what we're talking about today is this interesting sort of pivot that many people experience um when uh, they are dealing with any number of different illnesses, whether it's an advanced chronic illness or a sudden onset illness, um, which is this often fretful term um or phrase that you know people may hear, which is when nothing else can be done. um, you know, in other words, Maybe a doctor or your your care team is is sort of saying to you, we're running out of options here for you. Um, and most people would see that. I think suspect everybody likely sees that initially as this fatalistic sort of endeavor of, well, gosh, that means I'm, you know, now sort of faced with my own mortality. But it also opens another door. And that's what I want to explore a little bit with you today, Leslie. And so can you just sort of kick us off with talking about what that means and what that looks like and what that what the other side of that different door actually is? Sure.
2: Um, You know, I work with uh, folks for many years after that news came. And the past nearly four years, I work typically before that news comes, and I am working with folks in the hospital, uh, I work in palliative care where I see folks from diagnosis to referrals to hospice to end of life that never get to hospice. And that um, hearing that phrase, there's nothing more we can do for you, uh, is really a misnomer. Hmm. Um, it is really um what I think the providers intend to mean is there's nothing more aggressive we can do for you. Um, but that's the beauty of palliative, where we can come in and say, so there's no more aggressive options, but there's always things that we can still do for you. Uh, it's it's about maybe a shift in goals, a shift in, as you've always said, wants, needs, and priorities at that point. Right. Um, it's really kind of reframing what does that mean? Um, For some, hearing that information is terrifying and uh, they never wanted to reach that point of hearing that. For some, it's a relief. For some, it means now I can stop coming in and out and doing scans and treatment and dialysis. And now I can focus on what's really important to me and my family.
1: Right. Well, and so you've hit on a lot of things there. I think most people, for most people, it's it hinges upon their fear of suffering, right?
2: And again, I think that that definition of suffering is individualized. Fair. I think for many, you suffer the moment you're starting to get sick and you hear a diagnosis. mm And you worry about what suffering is going to look like in the future. Right. For some, suffering means, okay, now I've heard there's no more treatment available. What is end of life going to look like for me? Am I suffering there? And is my family going to suffer? So I think from the diagnosis to end of life, suffering can take on whole different meanings.
1: Sure. You know, we've explored in past episodes about with past guests about um, you know there are all kinds of pain, there's physical pain, existential pain, emotional pain, there are lot lots of different types of suffering, as you cite. Um, and you know, um, typically I, I I suspect what that begins, what then begins to happen once this conversation happens and once sort of the the dust su- sort of settles, right or the initial fear, uh, subsides. And you talked a little bit about some people are relieved, which I'm interested in, um, and would really want to explore that. But but then um, y- you mentioned that for others, it's just a shift in priorities. And I suspect there's a parallel track for either one of those. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
2: It's ironic that we're talking today because I had two visits with two different folks on that spectrum today. <laughs> one was an older woman that can no longer receive dialysis she's in her 80s and when she heard the news she called all of her friends and said i want to have a party because i don't have to do dialysis anymore and i can go see my husband and i can go and meet my lord she was celebrating the fact that they said dialysis is no longer going to be an option for you. So her wow. priorities then became let's let's party. Let's yes. celebrate, you know, for whatever time I have remaining. Let's celebrate that I'm getting to go meet my family again. Right. Conversely, I had a visit with a young lady today who was told that she can't have a procedure because her heart's too weak. mm. And the priorities, uh, there shifted between I have much more life I want to live. But now you're telling me my life is limited. How do I continue to write chapters in my book? Because my story can't end here. Right. So I think the priorities there also are very individualized.
1: Right. Well, and we've seen just... Recently, um, you know, we've got the oldest living president, Jimmy Carter, who was elected hospice care. And it, it seems pretty clear that we don't know the particulars of his of his individual case. He just he made this decision and determined, you know, he had a different set of priorities. Right. That and his goal was to maximize his life in as best a way that he possibly could for him and his family.
2: That's right what made sense to him
1: yeah what made sense to him at 98 i mean he you know he's still making those decisions and and it spans the spectrum cuz e- at every age we sort of you know when the, when when people are faced with these decisions they um they're they they run the gambit i suspect from you know initially being you know very fatalistic to as you cited the lady who called all her friends and said, I don't have to do dialysis anymore. We're going to have a party. Yeah. You know, I um, mean, yeah. that, that really is pretty, pretty ironic, but, but it's also sort of, you know, we, we grapple with this a lot and, and we've had a guest who shared this uh, some months ago that, you know, in Asian cultures, uh, death is celebrated in European cultures. Death is expected in America. Death is optional.
2: Right. Um, (laughs) I believe that may have been Dr. Karen Cross that said
1: that. (laughs) That's fair. It was. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, so back on, you know, sort of the topic that we're talking about today, though, I mean, so I suspect you get a lot of sort of really common questions, you know, as people begin to approach this threshold of there's nothing else that can be done. because. That's rarely probably how the conversation exactly happens. There are usually some preludes that run up to that of, you know, we're, we're, we're going to try this, but not sure it's going to work or any number of things. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about some of those common questions that sure. you hear and what they want to explore?
2: And, and you know me, I like to tell stories because those, those uh, are the richer stories. Um, a few weeks ago, I was asked to see uh, an oncology patient. Uh, which I do off-service. She was not involved with palliative yet, Uh, so I kind of wear two different hats. I'm a counselor for some and a palliative counselor for others. Right. And the oncologist asked me to see this patient because she was struggling with, they were now on their third line of treatment and it wasn't going well, and she was having to decide where do I go from here. So I, I went to see them and her husband, was in the room and I introduced myself and she said, I really want to talk to you and we really need to talk to you, but I want to talk to you alone first. And
1: so she's the patient and she's asking her husband to step out so she may talk to you directly.
2: That is correct. Mm -hmm. And so she did not waste any time when I sat down asking me. She started out by saying, I'm really tired. I have been through this. I have done this for years. I don't want to spend whatever time I have left suffering coming in and out of the hospital. But I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to tell my family that I want to do this. And by this meaning stopping all aggressive treatments. And then she said, and I want to know what dying looks like. And Hmm. so we had a very lengthy and honest discussion about kind of wants, needs, priorities, hopes, and dreams. Right. And so I shared with her that uh, actually what I did is I said, what are your fears of telling your family? And she said, I'm afraid they're going to feel like I'm giving up. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid my sons are going to feel like I'm not fighting hard enough. So we talked a little bit about people who have a chronic and terminal illness fight, 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 fight. and deciding to turn the corner and no longer do aggressive, doing aggressive treatments does not mean that you aren't fighting. It simply means that fighting gets pushed aside to what's now important, that you're still fighting at that point. You're still fighting to have those memories and to do those things you want to accomplish. And so we talked about kind of that proverbial, you're not fighting hard enough or you're giving up, you're letting cancer win. To then starting to talk about what would you want to do now with your family if everyone was on the same page? And so she talked about making birthday cakes with her grandchildren and having dinners again with her husband without feeling sick and nauseated. And she talked about, you know, at what point do you tell your family so that they're protected but you also bring in hospice to support you so we had a long conversation about what that looks like
1: sure you know what you describe makes me think that she's she's finding the affirming parts of living for her that's right um without sacrificing anything that she's done or or even having regrets of anything that she did prior to this point in her life. Right. But she's finding the affirmations that are important to her that really give her this great quality of living that that perhaps she didn't have up to that point, but she's hopeful to regain.
2: Exactly. And I think what was evident to me that day was that her fear of dying was less than her fear of telling her family that she was ready just to live life and to let go. Yeah. Cause she didn't want to disappoint her family. Right. And so she was asking kind of permission of how do I do this? And I think I may have been the first person that she openly asked those questions to mm-hmm. likely cause she was afraid to ask her oncologist what does this look like if I shift gears and go home with hospice?
1: Right. Right.
2: So we had a really heartfelt conversation and I told her that I could share with her what dying looks like and what hospice support looks like and how hospice can support a family and support her.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And her desire to meet with her husband was so that she could tell him that this is what she was thinking. So we were planning on having a second meeting the next day. So the three of us could sit down and I could open up a dialogue between the three of us so that she could say, you know, I'm tired and I just want to go home and be with my family.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really wonderfully affirming story Hmm. um, because it takes what we might otherwise consider to be a fatalistic moment and turns it into something that actually recaptures living. and, And that's what her goal, it sounds like, really was.
2: Right. Well, her wants, needs and priority shift. I hate to keep using a phrase that we've said before, but you've done lots of topics on this. And this is the yeah. point that it shifts, you know, yeah, that's at the right. point of diagnosis and at the point that you're told that aggressive measures are not now a viable option.
1: Right. And it is all incumbent upon seeking the permissions that you need or giving the permissions that, you need to give um, in order to invite those conversations, just like this lady did in your story. Right.
0: Hi friends, it's your host, Ryan Biagini. I'd like to take a moment to encourage you to subscribe and stay tuned to this podcast channel for exciting news and developments about how we support caregivers. As an organization, we are committed to advocating for those caring for others and creating innovative solutions to address the needs of caregivers. And now let's get back to the conversation.
1: So we talked a little bit about oncology, um, though you work with patients and have worked with patients across, you know, a span of diagnoses. I mean, not just oncology, and but are there are the considerations the same? Are they different?
2: I, I think the conversations are still the same. Mm-hmm. I think you can fill in the blank for the diagnosis, and you can fill in the blank for the treatment.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, But I think the reality is anytime we are facing a chronic or a terminal illness, regardless of what that is, and you're given information that changes your hopes and your dreams for, gosh, I thought I would make it to next year when my son graduates, or I want to see my daughter have her baby, which is, you know, in the fall. Right. I think the conversations are still the same.
1: Right. Right. Well, so the other thing that I think that's important for us to think about today is this really sort of complicated phrase. It sounds so simple, but I hope to get better. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that's a phrase that, you know, we use, I use it, you know, if I have a headache, you know, I hope to get, I hope to feel better if I'm sick and I go to the doctor, I hope to get some medication and some relief so that I will feel better. But for someone who has a sort of a long-term illness, better is a relative term, right?
2: Well, I hope to feel better and I hope to get better are two very different things too. Oh, do tell. So you having a headache and wanting to get better, you can kind of cure yourself from a headache by taking medicine. Feel better for this lady in the hospital that is Sick and can't take chemo anymore, for her to say, I hope to feel better, means I hope to not be sick. I hope to be able to taste food again. I hope to be with my family again. I think she probably wouldn't necessarily say, I hope to get better. But I think that's where I kind of ask that question. How do you define the word better? What does that mean for you?
1: Right. You've talked about a couple of examples where... um you know, the lady with dialysis who called her family um, and said, we're having a party. This one lady who really just wanted to talk with you about what this was going to look like for her. And how do I begin this conversation with my family? Um, But then, you know, there are any number of people I suspect who fall on a different, a different side of that spectrum on the different, you know, extreme of that spectrum, which is they are not ready to have this conversation at all. Right. And so do you ever meet with resistance and, How do you find a pathway in?
2: I do meet with resistance. Um, And like I said earlier, I kind of wear two hats. I wear just a counselor hat and I wear a palliative hat. And I have to decide at any given time if I feel like from the notes or from the reports or the consults that someone may be resistant to palliative care. I kind of go in just as a counselor. Mm -hmm. And I really kind of go in to say, you know, I know you're here. Um, I'm someone that just wants to get to know you and hear your story and tell me about you and what's important to you. And so I think sometimes just breaking down the expectation that I've got to speak to a counselor is helpful. And I think sometimes people just want to tell their story, whether they're ready for comfort measures or whether they're ready to take on another treatment, um, I really go in without any kind of agenda other than to say, I'm here to listen. How can I help? So right. I try I try to get over resistance just by simply being and being present mm-hmm. and listening and really not having uh, an agenda.
1: Right. You know, we've had a really interesting conversation today. Um, there's a... Quote that I love, um, Augustine Burroughs, who wrote Running With Scissors, says, when you have your health, you have everything. When you do not have health, nothing else mattered at all. And the whole conversation we've had today actually stands in a little bit of opposition to that, Um, you know, that that there are a lot of things that matter, uh, that health is sort of a relative thing, um, particularly when you've had long episodes of illness um feeling better looks different for someone who's lived for example with COPD for many years than it would for me for example or you um but but what we've talked about here what I think what we've established for our listeners is that there is absolutely a space after nothing else can be done that that there are options and a continued life that you can realize and you've got sort of a couple different, you know, options. You can totally retreat and believe that, you know, my world is over, or you can lean into your needs, wants, and priorities and redefine the goals that you may have for your life. Just like in the, the lady's story that you, that you shared, she wanted to have dinner with her husband. She wanted to be able to find the right words to tell her children, this is my decision. This is what I want. Right. And so, you know, what we've what we've arrived at, I believe, is is that this news is not the end. There is still life to be led.
2: Correct. Um, in the story of the woman that I worked with earlier today, who's a young lady who um, just found out she can't have a heart procedure. She's uh, in her early forties, and she was not prepared to hear that information. Our conversation went something like is this the end of your story? And she said, no, I have more chapters to write.
1: Oh, that's a beautiful.
2: And I said, so how do you do that? How do you shift from thinking you were going to go to rehab now? That's not an option. So maybe going home with support is an option. So what chapters do you want to write? And she shared with me some things that she wanted to still accomplish. And I think that shows me that we are greater than our diagnosis and we Mm -hmm. are greater than our prognosis that we are really. um, So the lady that wants to go home and have a party because dialysis is over and she's going to go see her husband. She's really happy. Her priority now is I want to go and just be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And this young lady, she's like, I want to go and, and still see what I can do to get stronger, get my heart stronger. And I want to spend time with my parents. And so it goes back to how do you define the greater person other than the diagnosis or the prognosis? And, what, right. does that, and what does that look like?
1: And still how still? do you redefine better? Right. Yeah and what's better for me is is may not be better for somebody else but maybe the very best thing that you know that i need for me and my family
2: correct yeah yeah you
1: you you said um i think you said this uh, it, uh, um that you you're more than the diagnosis that you have yeah. you're still a person that's right um, yeah. the
2: diagnosis may feel like a big part of you but it's really it's really not who you are. You are a, you know, I am a daughter and a sister and a mother and a friend and right. a counselor. All of those things don't change right. because of an illness that I might have.
1: Cause when we reach that point, it's now just time to focus on the rest of you. Right. Not just that one piece of you.
2: That's correct.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: It was funny as we were preparing, I was preparing today. I, I thought of, uh, the song um, that Tim McGraw does about live like you're dying. I don't know if you're familiar with it. He asks his friend who's just gotten a diagnosis. What did you do? And he said, I went skydiving and I went Rocky mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Yes. I loved deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave from forgiveness that I had been denying Wow. And I think that's a really important thing that this can shift when you're hearing that news that there's nothing more that we can do aggressive treatment wise.
1: Right. There's still life to be had. There's, you know, from from diagnosis to the end of life, there's still a lot of life to be led. Right. And and each it, it will look different for each individual person. Yes. Um. And but the reality is it is still their life to lead and still their enjoyment and fulfillment to have. That's exactly and, right. And and nobody takes that away from them at all. Right. And I think that's really the beauty of the work that we do um, at Hospice of the Piedmont and that you do in your work as a palliative care social worker on the inpatient side in the hospital. Um, I think that's just, I think we can't forget that because right. we are more than just a diagnosis. We are still people who Absolutely. have real thoughts and feelings. Um, so and, 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 and
2: always. I've always and I've always said, I didn't mean to cut you off, but
1: mm,
2: okay. uh if I can kind of end on one thing, it's it's that uh we don't get a dress rehearsal for this moment in life. Yeah, we don't we don't get to practice the conversations that we want to have or um the last few weeks or months that we have. We we get through it the best way we know how.
1: That's right.
2: And so to work in hospice or to work in Palliative care and to feel comfortable opening up a door and letting someone walk through that and having these conversations, it helps. It helps them figure out those priorities, needs, wants, hopes.
1: Yeah. Opening a door when people feel like a door has been closed for them is a powerful thing.
2: Absolutely.
1: Leslie. This has been a wonderful exploration today. I really appreciate your being here and taking this adventure with me and helping our listeners understand and how to frame um, these really important considerations and acknowledging that, you know, when, when we learn that we may have limited options available to us, it doesn't mean that we're done living.
2: Absolutely.
1: So thank you.
2: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me this forum to be able to share this.
0: Yeah. Always good to see you. You too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the E-Series. We're excited about our upcoming podcast episodes that will highlight a variety of incredible guests. You won't want to miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts so that you'll receive a notification as each episode publishes. Until then... I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.